Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to a beautiful podcast. I'm your host, Spring Developer Advocate Josh Long, and this show is all about the real heroes behind Spring and its ecosystem. Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to another installment of a beautiful podcast. How are you this fine Thursday afternoon? Uh, I'm home. I'm actually home in sunny San Francisco, uh, but not for long. Uh, you know, as always, I'm, uh, well, not always, but certainly uh, before the pandemic, and it's slowly starting to uh, return to that normal. Uh, I'm on the road. Uh, I'm headed to lovely New York City. I'm fresh, uh, you know, freshly returned from, um, where did I come from most recently? I'm actually at a loss. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, Germany and uh, Canada, Toronto. So I'm, I've just got back from that trip earlier this week. And um, uh, this weekend I head to New York City for the next Spring One Tour installment in New York City, uh, you know, which is my favorite U.S. city, if I'm honest. It's big, it's chaotic, it's brimming with energy and awesomeness. And that suits me just fine. I love that place. Um, I love the food, I love the hours, I love the energy. I just I just love it. I, could, I can't wait. So in that vein, because I'm trying to, uh, you know, make my gallivanting around the uh, planet a little bit easier, a little bit more safe, um, I got my second covid booster here in san francisco on monday uh so that i'm now just that much more prepared for that horrid virus uh, i got my vaccine but i felt a little lethargic and i had aches on tuesday uh by wednesday i had a swollen armpit glands and now today thursday uh, you know i feel fine um mercifully by the way a good thing right because i've i've been busy this week i spent the whole week working on content and code as always uh actually i'm working on the last two installments in my series looking at Spring for GraphQL. So stay for, stay tuned for that. That's either later today or tomorrow uh, this week. Um, I've been working on two other code bases, and uh, they've been a lot of fun. But uh, they've taken, you know, let's say each of them has taken uh, almost eight hours worth of effort. So it's it's quite an investment when I wasn't planning on doing it. And they're completely unrelated to each other. Uh, but I found that these things uh, have something in common, which is that they both deal with fragile sort of multi-step processes that benefit from the sort of regimentation imposed by something like a spring batch or a, or a workflow engine, right? I love uh, state management. I love workflow. I love state uh, batch processing. I love the idea that we can have well-understood state management uh, and workflow and batch processing both exist in all, but the simplest of code, right? If you look at a method with just, you know, return A plus A plus B, that's, there's no, real workflow there. But anytime you have a complex um, process that something needs to go through with state transitions, then this kind of stuff is very useful. And that's, you know, you find the, in the context of uh, large amounts of sequential data access, it's particularly valuable to have, to have a state management uh, infrastructure to keep tabs on how far you've gotten in, in some, you know, uh, ETL or ingest or whatever. Um, And so spring batch is great for that. But just broad, even more broadly, right? Workflow is a is a great way to describe the state tra- transitions of uh, uh, entities or of states uh, and people in your your system, right? Uh, basically, real or autonomous actors in a system. And so, I love workflow. I love uh, state management so systems like Spring Batch and uh, uh, Flowable uh, because they give us a great way to describe um, state, right? And that's super useful. Um, these two things I'm just I'm building are, uh, you know, they have complex state. They're dealing with data that might be f- 
uh, fragile or it might be flimsy, right? It might be um, faulty. Lots of Fs here to describe bad things. Lots of it's data that might fail to to you know the the queries the the read of that data might be uh, error prone, right? Um, and so there's state there, and there's also how do you handle errors and retries, and what happens if you get you know through 99% of the records and you fail on the last one? Should you roll back the whole thing, or should you just roll back the batch, the latest batch, the latest chunk of which uh, of the data that you're trying to read? Uh, you know that kind of stuff is stuff where it's very useful useful to have infrastructure in place to handle to explicitly delineate the state management of your code. Right? Remember, there is state management. There's something that might benefit from workflow or state management systems like Spring Batch in all, almost all code, all but the most trivial of code. The question is whether we embrace and optimize for that state uh, and that fragility or um, whether we just ignore it, right? It's going to be there whether we uh, address it or not. The question is, do we want to address it? And so for this kind of stuff, I like that, you know, and, and I, you know, I think of it like this. Um, if something is going to take long enough that you wouldn't do it, in the um, hot path for a particular web request. That is to say, if the result would be something that you would explicitly treat as a streaming or asynchronous event, that's probably something where you might benefit from having explicit state demarcation, right? Um, and so I just, uh, it's very easy to then think about this stuff. And we used to talk about back office, you know, uh, kinds of uh, systems, right? Where work that was done, um, out of the main thread pool, out of the main uh, hot path of your work. Um, and I just, I think there's, you know, that kind of stuff is super, super valuable, you know, long live state management. I remember 15 years ago, it was all the rage. It was de, it was de, de rigueur to uh, have these systems that escalated um, support for state management, right? That uh, So I actually remember being quite impressed with um, JBoss, uh, JBoss Seam. Seem, you know, the programming model was not particularly great, but the idea was always interesting to me, right? Where you could have this one web framework that you describe the conversational flow of data from a, from an HTTP request all the way to the database and all the way through multiple forms in the in, in the web app, right? Um, and that conversational state, you know, you could it could live in the HTTP session, it could live in the database, it could live in a workflow process, and it's just all very seamless, right? JBoss seam, right? Uh, how you perpetuate that state. I always quite like that. Um, so anyway, good stuff. I love, I love all that. Um, I think having infrastructure, explicit infrastructure to handle that uh, fragility is, is quite useful. Uh, and so these unrelated efforts, I admit, have been very satisfying to work on, even in spite of my sore, uh, a sore arm. Uh, and I guess that Right there is as good a segue as anything for today's guest, my friend, Ted Neward. Now, Ted's an, he's an institution. He's been around the industry for decades and has helped all of us in one way or another, uh, especially if you're using Java or .NET uh, or any of a number of different languages. Uh, I love bumping into him at various conferences. I, I, I you know, we don't, we didn't get to meet um, at the same time for this show as he was in Poland and I am here in San Francisco, but he was still kind enough to take time with me to, to talk and just to catch up, which I uh, am grateful, grateful for. Right. So thanks, man. Thanks, Ted. This is, that was great. I really enjoyed the conversation. I have so missed out. Uh, I've so missed hanging out with this guy. Uh, and it was great to finally get to catch up, even if only for a little while online. Uh, and for the, for the first time, at least half a year. Right. So I, I don't think I've seen him in person since before the pandemic. So as you can imagine, 
we had a lot to catch up on. And that's why this conversation is so indescribable, right? My hope when I invited him was to have a little fun and talk up some of the interesting advancements in Java and .NET. I call Ted a daywalker, like the Marvel Comics character Blade, who is a vampire that is able to exist in the sunlight. Ted's pretty uniformly uh, famous in both the .NET and Java communities and beyond. And uh, I think that's just amazing. It's always been that way for him, right? I can remember reading his stuff uh, on, on both sides of the fence, you know, uh, in both communities more than a decade ago. He's just been a very prolific, generous genius, you know, and uh, I just really admire that about him. He refuses to um, stick a, a flag firmly in one camp, and that's great because both offer some very interesting um, uh, technologies for those who would uh, who would consume them. Now, bear in mind that... Uh, I don't normally or actually almost always care where a conversation takes us, right? I don't go into these recordings hoping to steer the conversation in a particular place. I always tell people when we when we do the show that we could talk about sports and, and just bear in mind that I know absolutely nothing about sports, right? I don't care, right? I just want to talk to these people. And uh, usually it's good. And if it's not good, then you don't hear it anyway. So whatever. Uh, but I'm oblivious and uh, indifferent to, you know, a particular destination, 99.9% of the time, maybe for like promotional purposes or for the purposes of synergy or whatever, I might have somebody on the show, uh, you know, that, that, uh, is doing a big thing and it makes sense to then air that episode in time to promote that big thing. And obviously there's a, there's a synergy, a union of the minds there. Both of us want to get to that point. Uh, otherwise what's the point of the show? Um, but I don't normally have an agenda. So, uh, I, you know, vaguely, vaguely, just broadly in the back of my mind, I kind of thought that maybe Ted and I would touch on some of the things uh, that the different communities could learn from each other, the .NET from Java and the Java from .NET. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, one does not simply, um, you know, have a conversation with Ted. <laughs> like it, it, it's Ted, right? And uh, even having an inkling of a direction of where I was maybe thinking the talk might land, uh, is, as it turns out, a terrible idea. Because Ted's already been where we might try to lead him. He's been there, and he got the t-shirt, and he's back, and he's unimpressed. So this conversation took whatever form it was going to take, and it was honestly one of my all-time favorite conversations. Uh, we just covered everything. I, I don't even know what we covered. We covered everything and nothing. Um, obviously, his mind is, you know... Oh, uh, interesting place. I'd love to be able to spend a few hours, but not more because I don't think I'd survive uh, in his amazing mind. And uh, we, we covered, gosh, what did we cover? We covered small talk, uh, uh, visual programming, 4GLs, live objects, WebAssembly, .NET, naked objects, object orientation, serialization, GraalVM, and, and, and so, so much more. And by the way, I said GraalVM. Uh, we, this wasn't a GraalVM native image. Um, uh, you know, uh, session. No, 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 no. I mean, that's, it's fine, whatever. But what we talked about was truffle, which is the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the awesome, uh, also included, uh, piece of infrastructure inside of Gravium. So yeah, it was just a really roving, wide ranging conversation. Well worth, uh, a listen and re-listen. Trust me, you don't want to, you don't want to miss this. So do as I do when I uh, talk to Ted, get something in which you can scroll down your notes and then just press play.
better. I didn't know if we we're going to get there. I, uh, it's it's been either. good to talk to you. Yeah. I mean, it's, we don't get to talk. We used to get to talk in doses and, uh, and it was just enough to, to state the appetite, but make me want more, you know, like I know I want more. I just couldn't handle anymore. Uh, and, and now it's like when I, now I don't get enough of you. Uh, I mean, I never get enough of you, but especially now since we're so rarely in the same place and uh, we have so rarely the opportunity to, 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 to con- connect. Hey, by the way, don't you live in uh, which state do you live in? I think I know. Oh, but just in case. I live in Washington. I live in Redmond, uh, about yeah. 10 minutes from the uh, Microsoft campus. Okay, no pressure, no pressure, uh, but um, uh, I'm just checking here because I want to make sure I'm not misspeaking. Uh, yeah, July 12 to 13, I don't suppose you're going to be in town. Um, I think I will be. If you are, big if, I would love to see you. And, and uh, the, my, my, there's a spring one tour Seattle edition there at the W Seattle on the 12th and 13th of July, which is next month, which is nice because that's soon. Um, Yeah, I mean, whoops, hang on, go back. Um, Holding, holding. I'm just bringing up the spring one tour, so I've got the dates in a browser tab, so. Yep, I just um, sent you this chat. Yeah, I should be around. the uh, biggest thing would be simply getting um, getting from West Side Seattle over to East Side, um, just because people people like me generally try not to cross the bridge as much as possible. But I'll come to you, man. Like it's fine. Just tell me where to be. Uh, have Uber. We'll travel. Because um, right around that time is a big. Um, a summer festival in Seattle. Too. Oh, seafarers in August. Never mind. Okay. Ooh. I was hoping that it was like around the same time that you were coming out because if it was, yeah. that would be a great thing to go see because it's kind of a Seattle thing. The Blue Angels what? come out um, and uh, they have oh. like hydroplane on the sound, you know, hydroboats, right? You know, all of those and all that stuff. So. We have Fleet Week. Is that kind of like that? Uh, Fleet Week is naval, right? This isn't this isn't military yeah. affiliated. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's cool. I don't. I would love to see it. I'm sad. I'm going to yeah. miss it. Yeah, but it's um, Seafair is August fourth, so you're, you'll miss it by a couple of weeks. Missed it by that much, but at least I get to see you. That's that's what I'm trying to say. I, you know. Yeah. yeah. Do you watch uh, Get Smart? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I watched that. You know, as a kid. Yeah, missed it by that much. Um, Okay, so good. I'll see you uh, in Seattle. And the reason Seattle is so interesting is because, you know, first of all, uh, it's always cloudy. You're the original. You, you, like San Francisco, are the original cloud natives. Uh, Not only because of the weather, but also because you're near uh, both Amazon and Microsoft. And uh, two, you know, two of the most impressive uh, companies uh, whose per capita, you know, whose net worth is larger than some countries, right, um, on the planet, right? And that's very useful because you are like Blade, Daywalker. You can you can do both .NET and Java, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's <laughs> so. Tell us about you. Who are you? What do you do? 
Uh, well, name's Ted Neward, um, and apparently um, I hunt vampires. Exactly, right. Um, I've been... Um, I've been deeply involved in both the job and the .NET communities since basically around the same time. I wrote a couple of books in the Java space in the late 90s, wrote a couple of books in the .NET space in the early 2000s, and have you know, really been um, looking to bridge the gap between the two communities for a long time ever since. Um, and you know, really looking at, uh, you know, it's not just job and .NET. I look at a, a large number of different technologies and look for lessons that we can learn and apply from one technology space to another, right? So one of the things that I'm you know, currently diving into is I'm spending a fair amount of time studying small talk and the small talk, oh, nice. and small talk images. And, you know, in some respects, what did we lose when we moved away from some of the things that a small talk virtual machine had as they were developing the JVM and the CLR? One right. thing that a lot of people don't realize is that um, one of the most efficient in terms of space and execution time, one of the most efficient small talk virtual machines in existence was a VM called StrongTalk, which Sun purchased and made that the hotspot Java virtual machine. So wow. the JVM actually has a history of Smalltalk directly embedded within it. And that makes you feel better. Well, and Smalltalk is one of the original dynamic languages, right? So a yeah. lot of the stuff that we see um, in terms of how Ruby operates and Python and so forth. Uh, there's a lot of history there in, in the small talk space as well. But even there, yeah. they don't have, they, they haven't taken it to quite the same degree that small talk did way back then. And, you know, it's not just small talk. I look at things like prologue and I look at languages like Lisp and, you know, right. um, in many respects, you know, I'm, I'm very much a language and virtual machine lover. You know, I'm constantly yeah. looking at all these different things and how can we leverage their strengths in ways that will enable us to, you know, to write code more efficiently uh, without having to go to bizarre lengths to do it. I think Smalltalk is, because you mentioned that, that's, a, that's one of those languages where I've always wanted to dive into it more. I mean, I know that it had uh, some of the heritage around visual programming comes from, the, the the environment you could use to build small talk programs. And I know that it was, it you had message passing, you know, you could send a message to an object kind of like you can in, in, in Ruby as opposed to calling a method on an object, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that was one of the things you could do in small talk, which I, yeah, Alan Kay would be, I'm sure quite pleased. And, uh, you know, just, I, I've always just had a lot of, I've heard good things. I never got a chance to use it directly, but I've always wanted to. And there's even, like, I know there's a, a a burgeoning community around it even today. There's apparently a web framework called Seesaw, which is quite good. I haven't got a chance. Oh, it's to... been around for decades. Seaside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Seaside. There you go. And I just, I mean, that's awesome. It just continues to be interesting and amazing. And yeah, rock on small talk. I like. I, I had uh, somebody on the show, not nearly so old, but I had somebody on the show just recently, uh, and we were talking about Cold Fusion. I mean, I'm not talking about the person. I'm yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, the, no, the, the sorry the antecedents yeah. are hard. I'm sorry, that didn't sound right at all. I had somebody else on the show 
and we were talking about something and that thing was not nearly so old as what we just talked about, which is small talk. Um, right. It was a uh, cold fusion. Do you remember cold fusion? Yeah. I yeah. wrote cold fusion code back in the day. Yep. It was pretty interesting. I quite liked it. And I remember if the only game in town was ASP, JSP and CFML, the CFML always looked like they had thought about the use of tags a little bit more and it seemed like a more interesting solution. Yeah. Um, I think so. Cold Fusion, I think, was, was uh, I can't remember. They later got bought by Macromedia. But yeah, Alaire. In the meantime, Alaire. Yeah, that's right. Alaire was the yeah. company that did Cold Fusion. And then they actually released a servlet that knew how to part CFML. So you J-Run. could do um, J-Run was the later thing. They started with just a straight servlet that oh, could part okay. CFML tags directly. And then, um, you know, they, when, when, um, when Macromedia bought them, they started looking for ways to integrate more deeply. But I mean, at the end of the day, there were a couple of other tag-based systems around at the same time. Yeah. was, you know, I remember PHP is around at the same time trying to kind of go after that same sort of uh, keep the code and the page close together yeah. so that you could see them. And, you know, and it's interesting because we keep, we keep doing this interesting dance with how close do we want to be to a presentation layer, uh, but how removed do we want to be so that we can layer our code more effectively? You know, you look at some of the, the, the things that, you know, Angular and React, they're still fighting through some of those same kinds of issues. Do I want yeah. to see logic on the page or do I not? Or how much logic do I want to see on the page? You know, in so many ways, we're still we're still arguing about the same stuff as we did 20 years ago. You know, it's just yeah. now we're giving them different names and we're writing the code in different places. You know, for sure. I, I think, uh, it, you know, Microsoft, they did a really good job out of the gate because they had this component model uh, for building both UIs and web apps that was um, perhaps misleadingly. But very conveniently component-based, right? So you had ASP.NET and Windows Forms, uh, and you know there there's no such thing as a button with an event click on on the web, right? It's like this whole idea of a postback and all that was not. It was a. It was like so many things back then, a uh, an abstraction that let, let us build software better, right? Um, more quickly and more capably, while ignoring some of the whatever you know the more restfully parts of the web. And I really liked ASP.NET, you know? That was one of those things where it got beyond ASP and got beyond PHP and got way beyond JSP, uh, you know, to give us this nice component model approach. But then you're right. You've got this whole, like, here's my code. Here's the view layer. And there's this separation if you want it to be. And then you come to, a, you know, Angular and uh, Vue and React and all that. Now you've got the templates in the same code page, but it's a template versus a, controller they're in the same code page but they're not the same thing you know and i kind of like that separation well i mean realistically like i said we're we're, we're having the same arguments as we did yeah but one thing that you know web forms which was that drag and drop ui development model that was trying yep. to be very similar to windows forms you know, the one drawback to web forms was the postback right the constant number yeah. of round trips back to the server uh, because that became, you know, very quickly a performance problem, 
right? Sure. And yeah. this is where we have to be careful with where we draw the line around some of our abstractions is because if you hide a network wire as part of that component abstraction, yeah. you're gonna run into exactly the same basic problem. This is where right. some of the stuff around things like WebAssembly becomes more interesting. Oh. And applets would have served and Silverlight would have served, right? At the end of the day, getting the browser to execute that stuff locally, right? I mean, Angular yeah. and React could serve the same thing as well. The, the question becomes, how do you design that components approach, you know, at the user interface level? And then how do you design components that somehow stretch across the network? And that's the part where I will almost always draw a giant X. I don't want to see components that stretch across the network. Right. Because quite frankly, to my mind, the network is immediately a component boundary, right? Right. You can certainly see about an HTTP-based API, but I don't even want to see, you know, this is where people start talking about microservices are 2022's version of components. And it's like, eh, better to think of them as APIs, right? Right. You know, very, very distant APIs. Yeah. And frankly, do that in a much more contract-based approach. This is what I'm going to give you. And what you do with it, I really don't care from there. Right. So that each consumer of the API can look at it in its own, you know, in its own mindset. Right. When I we, agree more. Well, when we leave off the distributed systems nature of things for a second, and let's go back to user interface, this is, again, where some of the things around Smalltalk become more interesting. Because yeah. Smalltalk really didn't, I mean, Seaside notwithstanding, Smalltalk doesn't really deal with distributed systems at all well. But Smalltalk right. browsers from the very, very beginning were able to do things like object persistence. They were able to do things like direct manipulation of objects, et cetera. And there was a sort of a kissing cousin to Smalltalk called Self, which actually uh, really refined the idea of objects are things that the user interacts with directly, right? right? And so now when we talk about retrieving a person from the database, the person object is right there on the screen. This is what, in many respects, inspired the Naked Objects movement uh, that right. Richard Lawson was talking about, Apache ISIS and the Naked Objects framework over in the .NET space. And all of these, in some respects, take us to an interesting place that today we often refer to as low code or no code. Yeah. Right? And as long as we're doing something entirely within the boundary of, say, a single process, right, aka let's do this inside the browser, right, now you actually, what, what, what we start looking at at this point is we start looking at that service over there will give me some data that I can then take and consume and manipulate and potentially store inside yeah. my browser-based storage, right? You know, a SQLite instance stored inside the browser, or maybe I have, you know, maybe I've escaped the sandbox and I'm able to write something to my local machine or what have you. Mm -hmm. But either way, now we start giving end users better and more control over the user interface. And so... You know, in some respects, Angular, Vue, React, they're all the same stuff warmed over. I yeah. don't want to see us build yet another model view controller framework that runs inside the browser. I want to see us take the next step, which is to say, let me build an actual computing node out of this where I can yeah. start with a, I mean, some of the things you can do with, with some of the, the self, um, 
you know, the, the, the self interface, the morphic interface, there's actually a web version called Lively Kernel, where you can actually manipulate some of these objects, you know, directly in runtime. And it's all JavaScript running inside the browser, et cetera, et cetera. There's a flavor of small talk called Amber that is JavaScript runs in the browser. This is where things get really interesting because WebASM becomes a binary backplane that all the yeah. browsers can understand. And so I would like to see us really explore user interface beyond just buttons and scroll bars. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what I was gonna I was gonna ask because the WebAssembly proposition is super interesting and, and the the .NET folks in particular have gone a great deal towards making this possible. Now WebAssembly is starting to have it's starting to sprout support for garbage collection and things like that. But you've already got Blazor. You've already got these amazing technologies out there that let you work in this .NET world and you're running you're running user interfaces, but you can also talk to real things, you know? And uh, I, I mean, you know, I just think that'd be kind of interesting. You can actually make the browser your compute node. If you have the full abstraction available to you, then what's the difference fundamentally, you know? It's no well, longer the client to a service. It's it's whatever well, you could do before. It's always a client to a service, right? Sure, but, but I mean, now we're we're drawing these boundaries a little bit differently. And I mean, personally, Blazor doesn't excite me. It really doesn't. Okay. Because that is Microsoft trying to project more of the old way of thinking into the browser. And the fact that Blazor can compile to WebAssembly and run inside of WebAssembly, that's awesome, right? What I would yeah. rather see them do is figure out how to bridge the gap between the CLR and WebAssembly, right? So give right. them a CLR running in a WebAssembly environment and then let me use whatever language I want to generate IL that can then be interpreted by the WebAssembly. Or let's just take that necessary step and let's yeah. talk about a virtual machine executing inside the browser, period. Yes. Which, interestingly enough, is exactly what Roy Fielding was talking about in his dissertation way back when, when he coined REST. That is right. actually one of the final steps on his little grid of steps to arrive at the representational state transfer architecture, right? Is the, is the idea of an executing virtual machine. In his dissertation, he references the JVM because that's what was around in 2000. Right. But the interesting thing in some respects that this really starts to uh, uh, bring to mind is, are we just making the browser into another operating system? And if so, what have we really gained? And that's a reasonable question, I think, for us to ask. And should yeah. we try layer all that stuff into the browser? Which is why, in some respects, I kind of don't want to see a full CLR out of WebAssembly. I really want to see it focused on being a presentation layer tool, the browser. And yeah. you know, if there is any storage, keep it relatively lightweight so that we don't end up doing yet another gyration of the client server, you know, push everything out to the client, push everything to the server, push everything out right. to the client. We keep doing this Ferris wheel over and over and over again. And I would like us to actually find a place somewhere between both of those and park. Because I think we've I think we've answered pretty definitively over and over and over again that neither approach is better. They're right. just different. They have different pros and cons. Right. And see if we can get to the point of thinking about the browser as a processing node, right? If we can think about it as 
you know, a space there, it becomes a client, a thin yeah. client, perhaps, if you'd like. But it's making these, you know, trips back to the server over HTTP or, you know, whether you're using JSON or gRPC or I don't really care what. Right. But let's, let's get to a point where we can say, I have a processing node in front of the client. And again, whether it's a browser or whether it's one of these, right? Mm -hmm. Let's get to a point where we've got these tools, we put them in front of the user, and then we say, and you don't need a developer to do some of the custom things that you're looking to accomplish, right? This is where I think some of the low-code, no-code stuff can really become very useful and very powerful. The data comes in, you're inside of a very well-defined sandbox. Within that sandbox, you can do anything with that data. You can view it in different ways. You can slice it and dice it, do reports, yeah. whatever you like. That, to me, if we can get to that kind of level of consistency, that I think represents a significant step forward in computing because yeah. that was part of the power of small talk back in the day was you gave somebody a small talk machine and they could do a tremendous number of things with it. It wasn't limited to just small talk, right? The various 4 sure. all promised that, but they generally wanted to all live on a big honking server and, and you know they wanted to own the database as opposed to taking a more distributed sense of data is distributed across a fabric, if you will. Right. So, I mean, there's just... There's just all kinds of interesting things that are lying in these different languages and different academic right. research projects that it's just, you know, it's fascinating. It's fun. I think, so, okay, for, for me, Smalltalk, I know the environment was live and so you could do things live and, and see them uh, react. And there's other languages that had this approach as well. And I know there's a lot of research done in the 70s and 80s towards visual programming and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it didn't really take root as though I think it probably should have or could have if we had pressed on it a little bit more uh, for whatever reason, probably, you know, there's always the, 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 you know, beta versus VH versus a tape cassette, you know, uh, situation. And I don't know, but, but I do think we did learn something from there. I think we learned that fast uh, feedback is useful, right? So we have the REPL, right? I mean, the REPL, isn't a visual thing, but it's this live thing you can use to interact with your language while you're writing the code. And I'm not sure, it's, I don't purport that that's as good, but at least we didn't lose all of that, right? At least we didn't lose, and Lisp itself, it's famous. You can, you can write a Lisp program that changes Lisp. You can change what Lisp means and what Lisp is doing by writing more Lisp, you know? Um, it's the, the line between the program and the operating and the runtime that's running the program is very blurred with Lisp. So, well, the thing that Lisp taught us, the thing that Lisp taught us is that code is data, right? Yeah, and that data Wonderful. can become code, right? That's that's mm -hmm. the whole the foundation of semantic macros. But for example, talking about having access to the runtime, you know, the Seaside framework, one of the ways it's able to accomplish the very very different model of web programming that it can do is it can actually. Um, it can actually swizzle a call stack, so to speak. So normally, when you think about, you know, interacting with a web server, you say, okay, I'm going to put up a page, and then I'm going to go to the server with the results of that page, and then I'm going to come back to another page, and then I'm going to go back to the server, and then I'm going to come up with another right. page. And each of those are a separate logical thread of control through the web server, right? 
Each of those are right. a request to do get or do post or what have you, right? What Seaside does, because it has full access to the virtual machine, is Seaside can actually say, here is all the steps I want in a single method, so to speak, a single block, to use their terminology. Right. And then at a certain point, I can basically say, okay, and return. Now, what, what happens is Seaside will actually take a copy of all of the local variables and so forth. They can actually take that call stack, if you will, and save that off somewhere so that we go back to the browser, the browser does its thing and it comes back. Seaside can say, oh yeah, you're, you're user 457. Let me pull up that logical call stack and we will pick up right from where we left off. Right? Language continuation of a coroutine. It's, it's exactly, it's continuations and coroutines. Yeah, I would love that. And, yeah, yep. and that is that is actually a really really interesting programming model, right? Yeah. That you know, frankly, got lost. But more importantly, some of the things that because we have access to that virtual machine, and because that virtual machine, that image, is something that the browser is the Smalltalk browser is yeah. aware of, and so forth. At one, this was twenty years ago. At one point, I was working for the University of California at Davis in the accounting department. And the point of sale system that they used every day, students would come in and hand over their, their check for reg fees and whatnot. The point of sale system was written in Smalltalk. It was written by one developer like 30, 40 years ago, back during the heyday of Smalltalk. And at one point, um, we were sitting around and Larry all of a sudden got up and said, oh, I, I'll be back. I got to wander over to Mac Hall, which is where the registrar's office is, where these point of sale systems were, you know, cashiers, registrar. Right. Sure. And I'm like, oh, where are you going? He's like, oh, you know, point of sale system crashed and I have to go get the image. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Talk to me. What are you talking about right now? Well, when an exception gets thrown within the small talk environment, you can actually swizzle the entire browser environment down to a file. So Larry was walking over to the registrar's office to take a copy of this file, put it onto a USB key, walk right. back to his office so that he could bring up and it, debug. Live state. Exactly. He could That's debug awesome. the live state of this program because he'd been able to get literally a copy of, you know, the, the, the entire environment when it right. threw this exception, right? And think about that from a perspective of, you know, web browser or you know, web servers, right? When an exception right. is thrown and developers have to go hunting through log files, actually, no, let's just take that exception. Let's capture the entire state of the JVM around it and drain that off to disk. Yeah. And then recover from the exception and continue. And now I, as developer, can go grab that image file. I can rehydrate it, bring it back up, connect to it with a debugger, and see the exception that was thrown, but see the state of the entire rest of the virtual machine wow. at the time when the exception was thrown. I mean, think about how that would change the game, right? And especially now when I was thinking about web servers as not being necessarily thread per request, but, you know, doing, yeah. you know, potentially creating some smaller isolation boundaries and so forth. Right. Um, you know, that, that would be Amazing. an incredibly powerful tool 
And small talk had it 30 years ago, right? We lost well, sure. some stuff, but you know, part of it's because there were so many people who said, oh, there's so much overhead, so much terrible overhead in small talk. You know, I, I want to find those people and just throttle them. I really do. Because it's just, you know, so many, so many useful things were lost. So many useful things. They were sacrificed on the altar of performance. Oh, and Java, you know, give it, if, if you give Java a choice between being fast and 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 uh, small, they'll always choose fast, right? So, uh, and and as a result, you've got this virtual machine that ships at runtime with a, basically a, a C compiler that runs inside your process doing native image compilation, you know, for the hotspot. I mean, that's not, you know, you've done C or C++. It, it can take a while. It takes time. It takes a hot minute and generates a lot of heap. No wonder we had these Java applications that take a lot of RAM at runtime. There's a, there's a, it's doing native compilation while serving traffic. You know, it's um, Java, but it's faster, right? You get native code at runtime, adaptive native code. Of course, it's going to be faster eventually. But in the meantime, yeah. oh, man. So, so well, I was thinking about that, like, oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, the, the JIT compiler isn't, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't want somebody listening to this walk away thinking that, you know, the JVM has an entire GCC suite of tools buried inside no, no, of it. No, 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 Because it certainly does. I'm using it hyperbole. Yeah, but much of, I mean, much of the JIT compilation, you know, a lot of that is just recognizing common patterns, right? Yep. When you see certain bytecode patterns, you go, oh, yeah, now I know what the guy's doing. You know, and that's one of the challenges of if you're one of the JVM uh, developers at Sun, used to be that the only the only bytecode patterns I really needed to worry about were those that were generated by Java C, right? right. Java C emitted this particular bytecode pattern for a while loop. I knew it was a while loop, so therefore I could hoist this counter into a register and know that you know this is exactly the way it would be used. Right. Now you've got the languages like Scala and Clojure and Groovy and all these other you know, JVM-based languages. And right. if they don't emit similar bytecode patterns, you're actually, you're actually throwing a little bit of a loop uh, yeah. against the, the JIT compiler uh, developers because you know, there's all these weird patterns. This you is the same optimizations. Well, and, and this is the same argument for why Java developers really shouldn't spend a lot of time worrying about optimizing their Java code. Right. You know, I mean, the simplest of which is, oh, I'm going to go ahead and set all these references to null so that the garbage collector will go, son, the garbage collector actually has far better knowledge than you do. Yeah. That is just really wasted <laughs> code. And in many respects, um, the garbage collector, you know, it can actually do deeper level analysis to know exactly when that variable comes into play and when it goes out of scope. And it yeah. may actually have set that reference to null long before you did in your code. Now, when you come back and reference that, that variable and set it to null, you're actually disrupting that analysis. Right? <laughs> Amazing. Tremendous amount of engineering and man hours that went into. Oh, sure. Know, the JVM and, and the garbage collectors and so forth. And again, all of that got a jump start because they bought the strong talk VM, you know, all those years before. Yeah. And so they got all that small talk, you know, yeah. garbage collection knowledge. Um, I mean, you know, I have nothing but deep, deep, deep abiding respect for the people who work on any sort of virtual machines. Uh, it's part of the reason oh, sure. why 
my workshop here in Krakow is actually on building a virtual machine. Like yeah. we are going to spend three hours building a stack-based virtual machine in Java. So it'll be horribly inefficient, but literally how to interpret bytecode and how to execute those, those opcodes and operands and giving people kind of a foundation from which if they wanted to, they could go and build their own JVM light. If you really, really wanted to start playing around right. with some of this stuff, like, you know, Java and Java. It opens up a huge world for you when you start looking at these different virtual machines. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I mean, I, I, before I forget, I wanted to go back quickly because we're talking about uh, coroutines. And did you ever use java.net? Do you remember that website that, of your where yeah. we had all these cool open source projects? Um, and I remember actually seeing, I, I, I like workflow processing, you know, I like business process management and workflow and uh, that kind of thing. But in, in, invariably, these workflow systems, they make you describe the flow of data in a system in terms of this external DSL, you know. And it, the, the benefit of that was that you could then tie that to infrastructure to persist the state. So you'd have these well-known, well-understood checkpoints described by this DSL, usually XML or some horrible Baroque version of XML that requires so many different levels of uh, yeah. of, of def definition that you have to use tooling to generate it. Um, but you you define it here, and it's clear that you're expecting the process, the workflow process, to, to, to stop at a certain point and then passivate, and then some external trigger will activate it again, it'll kick up again, and that might be a week or a month between those passivation yeah. and activation cycles, right? So it's like a coroutine, it's a suspension and resumption kind of thing. You've got this process state, associated with it, but it's been defined externally and all the all the variables in on, in scope are not actually Java method variables. They're, um, you know, they're in a database somewhere and you can get them injected into you. But that mechanism just seems so interesting. And we've already got this really nice language for de defining flow control is Java. And so, so, so back in the early 2000s, there was this Java.net project, and I wish I could lay hands on it again, that actually added kind of a coroutine mechanism to Java. Didn't work great, but you, the, one of the examples was a workflow engine where you could have a method that would have multiple steps and these steps were like well delineated suspension yeah. points, you know? And I just I actually I built thought one about of those that. at one point. Wow. Um, when, I was, when I was at, at the university, you know, yep. accounting is very much one of those workflow kinds of processes. Yep. And so... Java had, um, you know, they hadn't yet incorporated it as part of the JDK, but the Rhino JavaScript engine was out. Yeah. And so I said, you know what, let's define a workflow process type. You know, this would be a JavaScript class now today. Yeah. It was basically a bundle of data. And so the process was tied to a JavaScript file that had a series of basically state machine uh, states. Right. right. So a process would move through a certain number of states. And so when you entered a state, you would go to that particular file and look for on enter state name. Right. And that would fire. And then, you know, at each time we would basically grab any of uh, any associated data with that particular record persisted in a database. We'd go fetch the data out of the database, populate the JavaScript object, make it accessible as this during the yeah. on enter state name. And then um, at the exit of that, 
Okay, now it's been modified. Well, if anybody goes into a user interface and modifies that particular record, you know, on evaluate state name. And so we would look at it. And if we needed to transition, there would be a method call. I can't remember if we called it proceed or if we called it transition or something. But basically, transition parens new state name. Yeah. Which we would call on exit state. And then we would call on enter new state. I mean, all of this was basically, you know, we, we didn't, I, I was trying to get to something into, get something into production relatively quickly. So I didn't try right. to hide the, you know, the, the co-routine nature of some of this, particularly right. because the goal here was actually to get non-developers to be able to write those workflows, right? To write right. that script and JavaScript was a, especially when you take out all of the browser garbage, JavaScript yeah. is actually a very, very approachable language. Right. Oh yeah. Especially if you've got some smart business analysts, which we did at the time. Um, right. And you know now everything everything that the university could ever want to do becomes a workflow, and yep. we could actually put a certain amount of you know authentication and authorization around it, because all of this is executing inside of a JavaScript sandbox. So if right. you're trying to change a particular variable or whatnot. Well, you're not changing it directly in the JavaScript. You're going through an object binding into Java code so we could evaluate who you were at the time you were modifying it and see if you had the appropriate rights to do so. Right. And we could, you know, we even made the modification of workflows itself a workflow so that we in the accounting department could actually evaluate whether or not this change to the workflow was going to be permitted because there were certain steps in accounting that you couldn't just bypass because each of the different departments on campus had their own right. slightly different workflow for the same kind of transaction. So now, okay, so this is a math journal voucher, mathematics department journal voucher. So we'll pull up that script in order to execute this workflow. And if the math department wanted to change the workflow, sure, we would, yeah. you know, it would show up in one of our analysts, inbox and look at it and go, yeah, this seems reasonable. Go ahead and let it persist. And then we yeah. would store the script back to the database. There's, you know, um, Microsoft's Windows Workflow Foundation was, yep. you know, same kind of same kind of thing. And I've never been fond of the business process engines that defined all of this in XML and whatnot, you know, big right. heavy biz talk like centralized servers. Nope. I found it much more interesting to say, if if we do this entirely in something like a JavaScript engine, which is just a Java jar, right. I can actually do that anywhere Java can run. And that includes your laptop or potentially the browser if you want to do this as an app web, right? Mm -hmm. And now I don't have to make that trip all the way back to the server in order to get the next step, in order to get some of the triggering evaluation of criteria, et cetera, et cetera. Being able to embed that processing closer to where it's happening, closer to the user when it's user validation kinds of stuff, closer to the database when it's actually right. data interaction. Um, and one of the great whiffs in our industry, I think, that we missed completely. Uh, Do you ever hear the concept of mobile objects? No. So there was back in the day in the late 90s when Java was still like you know flirting with Corba as the way in which to do distributed systems. There was a company called Voyager, and they had what they called the Voyager Orb, 
this orb object request broker that immediately classified them as one of the Corva vendors. But the Voyager orb was fascinating because you could actually take code executing here and then you could move it and it would literally serialize the Java object, put it to a different node, and then use one of the principles of serialization to actually pull the code associated with that object over into the new node and start executing it there, right? Nice. And in many respects, these are the same kinds of concepts that Genie would try to popularize many years later, but they didn't, they didn't actually make anywhere near as good of a case of it, and they kept wanting to talk about hardware. Right. But the Voyager orb, I actually built as a prototype a system where, okay, I'm going to start executing here, and I'm going to pick up, and I'm basically going to move my object over here onto a server where the database yeah. Running as a local process, right? I would love to do this today with Apache Derby because there were no databases that could run in the same process as Java at the time. But I would yeah. love to let me swizzle this, bring it over here to be running inside the database, do all the data interaction I want. Now I'm going to take the entire object and bring it back over here to the middleware and potentially bring it all the way back to the client if it's running Java right. on the desktop. And every time I interact with that object, it's local until I yeah. choose to move it to a new node. And I mean, that just solved so many of the problems that most of your object relational mappers have because that right. object could be an entire graph of objects, but we pull the whole graph over at once. Now we interact with that stuff, right? I'm not trying to fetch all this data across the wire multiple times as part of multiple SQL queries and whatnot but the object itself can decide how much data I need to get. I'll just get what I need off the database and then move back to the middleware and then right. move back to the, the client machine. Mobile objects was absolutely way ahead of its time. And it's tragic that Voyager, I'm pretty sure they went bankrupt decades ago. I can't oh. find them. I think there are still some PDF copies of the Voyager orb documentation floating around, but I mean, it was, it was, it was really some cool stuff. Yeah. It would have simplified so much of the traditional JWE, you know, uh, N plus one queries problem. Solution was there. We were just too blind to see it. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree. There's, I, I, I mean, it sounds like you, you take a dimmer uh, view of Genie, but I, I even quite like Genie. I mean, I was a big fan of, uh, uh, you know, open, what was it called? Open spaces, I think. No, open. Open spaces, you're right. Yeah. They right? Yeah. Spaces. yeah, they were. Tuple space, that, yeah. that, that was Genie's implementation of a spaces style uh, architecture. IBM had yep. one too. They called it T-spaces. Yeah. Um, but that, that in itself was still distributed. Right. That was yep. basically these blobs of these objects, these blobs of data living up in the cloud, you know, supported by all these different network nodes. The full mobile object concept, Genie supported that too, but it was such a pain in the ass to get spun up, right? To configure and yeah. so forth and to get all the permissions. And Voyager actually made a lot of that pain very, very easy to manage because they built some additional infrastructure and configuration on top of that to make it very straightforward. You write Java right. code, and it will now execute securely. 
And yeah. um, I mean, Java object serialization still has this capacity to this day. When I download yeah. an object from you, if I want to, I can actually follow an annotation in the serialization stream and go back to where you are to download the associated code for it using HTTP. It's all still there. Yeah. It's just nobody makes use of it to do this right. concept, which... That's a yeah. shame. Yeah. Yeah. Meh. Well, I think uh, I think there's going to be... Have you seen some of the stuff they're talking about doing to, to improve serialization in Java? Uh, because basically, it's a... It's a hack, right? Like it, 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 it side. It, it's an unsound way to get into the object graph. It circumvents most of the Java language's own safeguards against how you create objects and all that kind of stuff. And so, I guess the team at Oracle are. I saw a great talk a couple of years ago with uh, was it Brian Getz and somebody else. Oh, anyway, they're just yeah, yeah, and Doctor Deprecator, uh, you know, um, Stuart Marks, right? Like a. Uh, it just seemed like they're really trying to make it so that you could trust serialization again and people would be because right now we're just we're doing this thing where you take this really beautiful rich java object graph and then turn it into json you know and you're bound to lose some of the nuance that makes your object graphs so rich you know um well especially like because json json is fundamentally a hierarchical storage right right and not basically have... you can't do anything kind of like that well i mean you can't you can't track object graphs in it Right. Right. I mean, you know, I used to do this demo, same thing with Java and going this XML. Right. Yeah. If you've got two persons, right? You know, here's Josh and here's Tammy. And now you have a spouse field and they reference yeah. each other. Now you want right. to serialize that into XML, right? Good There's luck. a couple of different approaches to do it, but none of them are actually directly uh, supported by XML because XML is a very strictly hierarchical storage format. JSON and every other document database out there is another hierarchical storage format. It has exactly the same basic problems. Yep. And yeah, I mean, objects are a different breed from any other sort of shape. This is why I will frequently talk about when you're looking to choose a database, look at the shape of your data. Right? When I've got objects, it's often much better to store objects. If I've got relationships, it's better to store it as relational. If I've got right. a document like a blog post, yeah, store it in a document database. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I know Brian has, um, he has been frustrated with the state of Java object serialization for a decade. <laughs> you know, right. yeah. we had those conversations over dinners during the no fluff days you know, uh, all of the various hacks and workarounds that they had to do in order to be able to support serialization. I know yeah. that's been a pet peeve of his for years. And I, yep. I know that they're going to undertake ways to fix it. I guess my big, my big issue is, you know, are they going to break existing serialization? You know, the fact that you implement an empty interface always struck me as odd. Because yep. fundamentally, they just wanted that marker. That would have been much better done as a custom attribute, right? Or an annotation, right. that was terminology. Because that's basically what the .NET folks have done. But yeah. .NET took a stab at doing object serialization, and they came up with something that was very, very similar to Java's object serialization. And when two companies invest that amount of time in the same thing and come up with designs that are that similar, 
I really wonder if this is a, I really wonder how much of the problem they're going to be able to solve and how much of it is inimical to serialization. I'm just, you know, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to kind of keep an eye on it, see what they come up with, but I'm just kind of fearful that the deeper they dive into it, the deeper they're going to run into some of the issues that led to the problems that current Java serialization has, which truthfully is slow. I don't really have a problem with the current state of Java serialization. Oh, I, I, I wish I could find that video. I, I don't remember all the points, but it was pretty persuasive when I watched it. It was, it's like, oh yeah, okay. That's I mean, I, I don't use Java serialization, so I just my my takeaway from that was, oh, I'm sure glad I don't do that. That seems like a terrible idea. But it's been a few years. I, if I'm honest, I don't remember the details. It, it was just a very interesting dissection of all the issues and how these fairly straightforward, at least from our perspective, uh, steps could mitigate or reduce them. I don't know. It, I'll find the yeah. video. I'd love your feedback on it for some other day. But it's a it's a it's a counterfactual in the meantime. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember arguing with Brian about serialization uh, over dinner one night, and I can't remember right. some of the examples that he quoted. Part of it has to do with the way in which serialization was used. Part of it is, you know, the, the feature set that serialization incorporated. Um, and I mean, really, one of the main reasons why people didn't want to use serialization is because it is slow, right? Um, there's a tremendous amount of functionality inside of serialization, for example, around doing things like evolution of serialized types. So if right. I serialized a person V1 and wrote it to disk, and then we change the code for person, and now it's person V2, I can actually write my serialization code so that the V1 can be deserialized into a V2, or the V2 could potentially be serialized back into a V1, right? And then they've got, you know, there's all this stuff that, that all these different edge cases and potentials that you have to try to cope with. You know, it's a complex endeavor, it really is. Yep. And it always surprised me that Java didn't require any real assistance uh, from the developer in order to serialize. You know, right. they made a lot of assumptions along the way doing so. And so yeah. it might be that with some, you know, with some help from the developer, you can get a more sane serialization story. I don't know. That's, you know, I'm happy to let Brian and company spend countless numbers of hours trying to figure out how to make that not suck. And right. I mean, if anybody can do it. Yeah. I mean, like I said, great amounts of, of, you know, respect and admiration for the people who work on that stuff, including Brian. Brian's a very, yeah, very yeah. smart guy. So all of them. Yep. I, uh, and I, I've said it before, uh, you know, the, the JR, the, J, the JVM is, I, I, I reckon it's gotta be billions of dollars of R and D since the first lines of code in, in the early nineties. Right. It's, and we get to use it for free. And then, you know, I, I, I'm not out there complaining, you know, I, 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 it's a gift that we get to use it or, or even look at it, uh, for free and it gets better every year. It's just crazy. Um, my friend, what's the, okay. So just. I guess we're kind of at the point where I want to like make sure I get my uh, get some of my questions uh, answered before you have like real work to do. Um, <laughs> what's the um, uh, what's the big thing or two coming uh, in .NET and Java, and which would you, what would you like to see crossover? Um, you know, uh, so the big thing in Java is the easy one. 
right? And that's GraalVM, uh, but okay, not yeah. for the reason, but not for the reasons that most people are excited about Graal. You know, most okay. people look at Graal because, oh yeah, native compilation and ahead of time, and it's going to make all my Java code run faster. And yeah, yeah, okay, that's great, but you're missing the bigger point of Graal, in my opinion, which right. is Truffle and the Polyglot support. Ah, uh, yeah. That is a game changer for the Java platform because you know they've already got implementations of Python and Ruby. They've already right. got uh, implementations for LLVM Bitcode, which is huge, right? They've got an, an experimental R. implementation for, for WebAssembly. They're literally, what GraalVM is doing is literally creating a, you know, a multi-language virtual machine, right? They're they're creating right. this this you know sort of one VM to run them all kind of right. scenario, and that opens up a number of things from a you know for, for very practical uh, usage. So, for example, if you've got a data scientist on your team who is creating some data models in R, right? R is not really a programming language; it's much more like SQL. It's a query language. But if you want to right. replicate those reports, I can either try to figure out how to take his R code and rewrite it into Java and then execute it against the same data source, or I can actually take his R code and just execute it, period. Against stop. the data, yeah. Using the, using the same data, using the R libraries and the various plots and so forth. Right. Uh, ditto for Python, right? For all of the you know machine learning and... Um, Data reporting analysis, statistical analysis, et cetera, that the, all those right. libraries, you know, pandas and scipy and numpy, you know, back in the day, I remember doing some, I remember doing some training classes for a company out in Colorado. It was the only time I've ever been asked how I could get .NET code to call into a Microsoft Fortran DLL. <laughs> because all these geologists were writing all this code to analyze soil samples, basically for knowing where they could drill for oil. They were all writing it in right. Fortran because that's what they knew. Sure. And yeah. They were, using, they were using Microsoft Fortran. And so DLL, .NET knows how to call. So I actually cozied up one night after class and I said, give me an example of a Fortran DLL. Just literally put it on this disk here. And I'll take it back to the hotel room and I'll figure out how to call into it, you know, using the various tools to examine the exported entry points. Okay, here's how right. I write invoke code from C Sharp. This is how you call a Fortran DLL. And I tell you, when I had that demo running, the guy I gave the disk, I mean, he carried it like it was the holy grail over to some other <laughs> part of the office because it's like, this is the only thing that enables us to move into the .NET space is if we can call into Fortran. Because right. when you are dealing with people who are more math science than they are developer, yeah. going to them and using their tools makes a world of difference. Of and course. This is the kind of thing, this is the kind of thing that Graal enables. You know, the ahead of time compilation stuff, yeah, great. Your microservice runs a, a half second faster. I'm sorry, I just don't care. I just can't right. get excited about that particular use case. To me, it seems like it's trivializing what Brawl actually represents because the ability to find your own DSLs using their Truffle libraries that will now run right. on top of Brawl and get the benefit of all of the optimizing compiler things that Brawl does behind the scenes. Right. Uh, 
That, Amazing. That, is, that is the sexiest thing I've seen Java do in probably ever. Yeah, wow. uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I, there's a, a great demo by uh, Ole, um, Ole uh, Shalujev, who, uh, who, who's, on the, who's on the show before, and he demonstrated writing a Spring Boot app that injects an R function on, yep. on Truffle on, on top of Gravity. And it's just like, well, of course you could do that. Why couldn't you? And it's just so obvious when you think about it. And, and you know, right, right now, this is, this is the best thing we've got. I think a lot of people are excited about WebAssembly in the future, not now, of course, because in the future you can start composing logic from different languages as just, and there's just one common substrate, it's just WebAssembly, right? Uh, but we don't, don't have that. I don't think WebAssembly is yeah. going to get to that point. I don't think WebAssembly is going to get to that point. I really don't. Then, then that makes Gravium even more impressive. Exactly. I yeah. think WebAssembly, uh, I don't think it will ever achieve quite the same level of status that the JVM or the CLR does from a right. standpoint that WebAssembly fundamentally is a, it's a specification, right? It's yeah. a description of the code and the runtime behavior. And historically, whenever we have tried to get multiple vendors to agree on something that detailed, it takes a tremendous amount of time and effort. And WebAssembly, I think, acts as a nice binding force, right? Being able to yeah. admit something in WebAssembly. But the last time I looked at the WebAssembly specifications, they didn't even have direct support for strings. I mean, yeah. they had <clears throat> they had 32 and 64-bit integer and floating point types, and that's it. That's all they knew how to see things. So when you use Inscriptum to take some C++ code and compile it, all of the strings are basically stored as integers, integer values, and then there is a whole lot of code in the WebAssembly to go to that location and look at this string of numbers and convert them to their ASCII or Unicode equivalent and now print yeah. that string, right? That's a, that's a tremendously low, low-level thing. When Inscriptum starts to get strings, when they start to get, um, you know, the necessary bytecode modifications to work with those strings, when they start including, you know, the necessary exception types, I mean, a tremendous amount of work yet to go for WebAssembly to be that union of all these different languages. It's yeah. a useful compilation target to be sure, but it's people are going to find in many cases that I will target WebAssembly only because I need it to run in the browser. I don't know that we'll ever get to the point where I would choose to run WebAssembly on the server unless, and this is where things, things do get interesting. Picture your classic business application where I've got yeah. like a SKU number, right? And I need to validate it in both places, both on the browser when the user types it in to make sure it's the right format, as well right. as on the server where I need to make sure that that SKU number actually exists. That code is some of the very code that we worry about duplicating on both the client side and the server side. Right, if no, it's the same. Yeah, if we can get to a point of sophistication where that becomes a WebAssembly script of code that can be run in the browser because the browser knows how to execute raw WebAssembly and run mm -hmm. in the server because Truffle, you know, Truffle knows how to run WebAssembly right alongside the Java code. Right. Now, all of a sudden, I can write code once and have it be automatically delivered and executed in both places. Now, that gets really yes. interesting. Very but I don't interesting. know. That's, that's going to be a... 
I call it a 25% niche case kind of thing. I still want the CLR doing all the amazing things that the CLR does and the JVM doing all the amazing things that the JVM does. And WebAssembly acts as almost like a, a lowest common denominator, you know, between all these various, you know, compilation right. targets. Um, that's still, I mean, there's still a very powerful story there. I just don't think yeah. WebAssembly is going to get to the point where it's going to be a JVM or CLR competitor. I just, I just can't see that. I don't anymore. think so. Oh, oh no, I don't think so either. I think it's, it's, it's to me the use case is it's completely black box secure by default. You have to enable, you have to opt in to certain like network connections. You don't have it unless you opt in. And so with Docker and with all these other things, you have an operating system, you have all this infrastructure, and you can lock down certain things. But we do all this to wall off a whole program. We create a whole separate uh, operating system space basically for these little programs. With WebAssembly, it's just a, you can put. It's like a little plugin. It's a great way to build a plugin model where you can ship any language, uh, and it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter what the original language is. It is completely harmless by default. Yeah, it's a, a nerd, hosted, right? a hosted sandbox virtual environment execution engine. Yeah. So now yeah. imagine all the places where you'd want to insert random bits of business logic, but you were too scared to do it before because you didn't want to just run arbitrary jars, right? So imagine like. I don't know, writing uh, Kubernetes operators or writing gateway code or uh, just all these like use cases that are, I don't know, it just seems very interesting. Um, yeah. But yeah, also being able to share the logic in different tiers, that's also amazing too. Yeah. I, I, think, I think you're right. The sense of thinking of it as an extension uh, platform, an extension model of, of, of the plugin, as you said, that's probably yeah. the right way to think about WebAssembly for the next decade. You know, and now it may get to a point where they get sophisticated enough that, you know, WebAssembly can be used as a straight up server execution system, you know, in, in contrast to the JVM or CLR. But I think the JVM is there already with yep. GraalVM, which is why that's, I mean, that to me is, you know, I, I, I cannot believe that people, that Java developers are not falling all over themselves to find out more about this stuff. It just stuns I agree. flying under the radar. So. Well, plus even, and actually going back to the, like, if you're just using it as a hotspot replacement, forget about native images, forget about Truffle, even if you're just doing it for that, it's like free performance. It's, it's, it's 10%, 15% more efficient for garbage collection, right? It, just that simple stated purpose, that original stated purpose is already interesting in of itself. You don't need to do anything else. And then if you want to take advantage of Truffle, great. Uh, you know, and I know we, you know, the, the performance benefits from native images are not what actually excites me about those. What I love about the native images is the, the memory footprint reduction, right? You can easily get a fifth or less of your original JRE memory consumption, which is, you know, if you're running in the cloud, it costs money to take, take memory. So that could be a nice deal. But, yeah, uh, but I, mean, I agree, it's then, free. It's, you know, that... that Not a penance, yeah. I, I get where that 10% reduction can be useful and can be exciting to some folks. I worry... I mean, one-tenth. Well, one... Like, I mean, it's, whatever, whatever, yeah. whatever the numbers are, right? right? Whether it's 10%, 90%, 150%, the, the, the performance improvement is useful, yes. The thing yeah. that I fall back to repeatedly is, you know, we hardware continuously gets faster. We continually find new ways to eke more performance. And now with right. you know, we're making the next great 
shift, right? You know, Intel is, if they're not running scared, they should be, because now we're starting <laughs> to move over to these ARM processors that yeah. are a whole new generational set of lifetime in terms of, you know, low heat, low power, you know, being able to do multi-core, blah, blah, blah. And the yeah. beautiful thing is all these virtual machines shield us from the details of having to care whether we're running x86 or ARM. You know, hardware continues to get faster. Memory continues to get cheaper, et cetera. So yeah. the performance benefits, yeah, that's a nice relief today. But it's kind of, anytime you start using that argument, it becomes a, well, what have you done for me lately kind of thing, right? right. Because as soon as we get things going faster, as soon as we get them running smaller, inevitably we put more crap into it in order to get it right back up to its bloated self again, right? We're constantly pushing that limit. And, you know, to me, from a perspective of developer and being able to express my ideas very clearly and concisely and taking advantage yeah. of all these different ecosystems, that to me is really where Grawl earns its key. I mean, Chris Seaton, who was yep. one of the principal engineers around Grawl, you know, he actually did an academic project years ago called Katahdin. It's his thesis where it's a programming language that you can define different programming semantics at runtime, right? You can actually yeah. program a different, you can program a DSL in the language itself, so to speak, um, which, you know, he's clearly been thinking about polyglot for a very, very long time. And he was at Oracle right. Labs. I think he's left, but I think... He was there for a long time working on Truffle. Yeah, I think he's at Shopify now, come to think of it. Um, you know, all of that is, is just, you know, it, it opens up so many doors and so many options. It opens yeah. up entire new ecosystems for folks. And so that's, that's the thing I think that's really, really exciting in the, the uh, JVM space. The .NET space, you know, right now, Right now, a lot of the emphasis in the .NET space is really around the presentation. Microsoft just recently finalized MAUI, the Microsoft Application User Interface Toolkit, which is kind of, uh, I believe that's their replacement for Xamarin, which was the tool oh, wow. for being able to write both Android and iOS applications. I'm not positive. The that, they tend not to track the, the presentation level stuff as closely as I would like. But so Xamarin, the... So it was Xamarin that came out of Mono, right? That was the yeah. uh, yeah. Linux.NET from Miguel de Icaza. Yep. 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 Xamarin was so what Miguel did is once they got C sharp running on Linux, he took uh, basically he looked at the iOS libraries, right? Yeah. Because fundamentally an iPhone is running Darwin, it's running the OS X kernel. And right. so it's not that different from Linux. You know, there are some slightly right. different calls to load libraries. It's DILD instead of LD open kind of thing. Right. Um, and so he looked at the libraries for iOS and said, I just need to come up with some C-sharp bindings for these and then tweak the compiler to do ahead of time compilation to ARM instruction. And now I can load this onto an iOS device. And that was Xamarin. They did the yeah. same thing for Android and um, did all of that. And that's when Microsoft bought them. And now, this is like 10 years ago, right? Like this yeah, is 10 years ago. Yeah. At least. Yeah. 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 I think it's been about 10 years. Um, long, long time ago. Either way. That, but, you know, old, old ago. Well, right. now, 
Microsoft is trying, they, they keep doing this every so often. They're trying to kind of unify their presentation story across a variety of different platforms. And they were really talking about Silverlight. Yeah. Well, there were, there were two levels in Xamarin, right? There was Xamarin iOS or Xamarin Android, which was I'm right. writing an iOS or an Android application. I'm just using C Sharp to do it. So I'm still writing iOS view controllers and I'm writing Android activities. But then there was Xamarin Forms, which was kind of a abstraction over both of these platforms. So I could have that long desired, you know, write once, run anywhere kind of code base for anything mobile. Right. And so there was some warts there. And so Maui is an attempt to try to rethink a bunch of this to incorporate some of Microsoft's XAML, which was one of the more yeah. successful things in the Microsoft presentation world. So I can express my user interface in an XML-like language, which really, XAML is just a way of constructing an object graph. It's really not right. tied at all. Yep. But it's a nice unifying way to be able to capture all of this. And I can use it to generate either mobile app or web app, Blazor app with WebAssembly. They're trying to bring all of this stuff under one umbrella. That's, wow. that's probably that's the most so cool. thing at a presentation level. The thing that I'm tracking right now is what's called Microsoft Orleans, which is a Microsoft actors model for distributed yeah. data. So, um, I mean, I heard about that. in some respects, it's an actors model, the same as we've yeah. seen other things like Akka and Akka.net and so on. But this is Microsoft, and they've been using it internally. As a matter of fact, my understanding is they use Orleans as part of the Halo. Halo? Yeah. 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 Yep. I, I, so, I knew I heard about that somewhere. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it can clearly handle load because yeah. Halo multiplayer definitely is the definition of load. Yeah, so yep. um, That's impressive. I mean, super impressive. I can't wait to see that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's critical mass. I I just started really diving into it and exploring it and figuring out you know how they think about grains and persistent grains and so forth and right. how that all maps into reality. Um, you know, it's it's the devil's always in the details when you look at one of these distributed toolkits, right? Because again, going back to our conversation of an hour ago, if they paper over the network, they paper over the wires so you don't see it, it's a problem. You I really want to make sure that you're, you know, those, the network is an abstraction that will always leak. So how, do, how exactly are you approaching this? And how exactly are we, you know, hiding the wire as long as I don't want to go see it. But as soon as I run into something, I can go see it when I wish. That was the right. biggest problem with Corva. That was the biggest problem with e-commerce. They wouldn't let you see the wire unless you deliberately started, you know, diving through stack traces. Right. So. Decom, that's not, uh. <laughs> Giving you flashbacks there, Yeah. Uh, we did some weird things with distributed objects in the early, uh, late 90s, early 2000s. Java had its EJVs, but they also had Decom in the other camp. It wasn't great either way, you know. Uh, wow. Ecom was an extension of COM uh, because yeah. Microsoft wanted I me. Mean, COM was really the attempt to create a managed runtime using unmanaged code. They were really yep. trying to create a virtual machine using C++, and you had to you know, manually think about garbage collection. And then they layered a 
basically an orb on top of it, called it DCOM. Mm -hmm. And it suffered from the same basic problems that Corbett did. It was way too easy uh, to actually create, you know, large number, massive flurry of calls back and forth to the server without realizing it, particularly if you wanted to do kind of a metadata, sort of a reflection style approach to examining this object you've got on your end of things that could all of a sudden turn into all these remote calls just to see what yeah. methods and properties were available. Yeah. Corba at least never really fell into that trap, but you know, DCOM had to support things like VB, which was a very yeah. metadata rich environment and wanted to be able to see all those things. So it could display them and make them available to you and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. you know, it served its purpose, but barely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I remember seeing when .NET, one, when C Sharp first came out, I remember looking in like 2000, they had the early previews and all that. And, you know, just there was an attribute and you could just easily create one little remote object. And that was it. You want to call this method? It's it's just exported this one attribute. There's no, we didn't even have annotations. This is like before we had even gotten to that point. It was before the Java community had even used, had even arrived at a consensus that XML was a good way to, definitionally say that this method should be exported for visibility outside the virtual machine in a remote way. I mean, we, it was just so night and day difference. You know, the .NET folks had really, really, you know, like they understood like I, this is how you make an object uh, visible to the world. Yeah. Then well, of course we embraced the uh, rest and whatever, but. My familiarity with, with C-sharp and custom attributes was a large part of the reason why I was a part of the JSR 175 committee to define annotations because, oh, yeah. so good. you know, it's like, well, this is, this is what the, this is what the .NET guys did and this is why they did it. And yeah. in some cases, Java made some very deliberate decisions to do things differently because they wanted to support a slightly different set of use cases, which yeah. you know, as long as it's deliberate, I don't have really an issue with it. Um, but, you know, we can talk about annotations and some of the success or failures thereof another day because, you know. Next, next, uh, uh, polygot time. Yeah. Polygot channel. Yeah. Yep. Um, okay. So I, I don't, I don't even know where we are. <laughs> Do you, are you on the internet? Am I on the internet? Do you want to be found? If so, where can people find you? <laughs> well, truthfully, if, if anybody just Googled my name, they'd find me. I mean, I'm, you know, I've been doing this for so long that, that Google loves people who have spoken at conferences and whatnot. Um, yeah. But, you know, com is kind of the, all of the professional related stuff. Um, so that's N-E-W-A-R-D-A-S-S-O-C-I-A-T-E-S.com. Correct. Okay. You get, your, you get your spelling bee sticker for the day. Um, right yeah, I mean, you know, it should come up pretty quickly in the Google search. I'm on Twitter, at Ted Neward. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Ted Neward. Um, you know, it's pretty easy to find me uh, if anybody absolutely wants to. What I find is most people find links to things that I've said or done, and they're like, I don't want to talk to that guy. No, he's crazy. He's nuts. I have no <laughs> desire to, you know. Um, you know, I, um, you know, uh, my DMS are open. People want to try to hit me with, uh, questions or, you know, I will be, That's at, true. you know, I ask you questions at, uh, all the time. I'm here at DevOps Krakow today. Um, yeah. 
tomorrow I fly to Box Days Thessaloniki, which probably will be too late for anybody watching this podcast, but I will be at like, KCDC in Kansas City in August. Right. Um, oh, I think I'll see you there. Yeah, and I can't remember, I can't remember if I'm going anywhere else this year. Oh, VS Live. I'm doing a couple of VS Live shows, which are .NET uh, friendly shows, Microsoft friendly shows. Nice. Um, and yeah, you know, I try to keep my event calendar up to date on my website these days. So whenever I get an acceptance letter, I try to pop it in there so people can see it. So, And, and normally I would ask people if they have like a book or whatever, but you've got a whole bookshelf worth of books that people can find and a, a billion articles from on every different portal. And I, 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 I remember 20 years ago, I was reading your IBM developer works articles and just, printing them out and whatever i just you know you're 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 amazing so uh people will have no trouble finding you but i'll make sure they have a link to newerdassociates.com thank you sir as always right. for your time Been a pleasure. take care josh take care A Beautiful Podcast is produced by me, Josh Long. I do these podcasts because I believe that everything we do in software is for and made better by people. I want to hear from you. I'm josh at joshlong.com by email or at S-T-A-R-B-U-X-M-A-N on Twitter, where, of course, my direct messages are wide open. Do you have guest ideas, topic suggestions, feedback? Don't hesitate to reach out. If you like the show, then please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review, uh, as that really helps the show. I sampled music from Steve Combs's Them from Morning and Springtime and Steve Combs's Small Victory, both of which are licensed under a Creative Commons license. I'm trying to hire production assistants to make the production of this podcast easier. I want to make sure that we can add things like show notes and transcripts and, and just generally do more. If you would like to advertise on the show, then please reach out to me. Uh, and if you can't uh, or don't want to advertise but would like to otherwise support the show, then please consider supporting me at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Josh Long for as low as $4 a month. Thanks again. No harm came to any seasons in the making of this podcast.